another edition of Mr. Nice Guy. I'm Ben Slowey. And joining me today, I'm uh, very fortunate to have her here. Uh, we have a communities and cultures director and professor at UWM. Uh, she is an author, an activist. Um, she, her, her latest book that just came out earlier this year is called A for Asylum Seeker. Um, yeah, uh, we, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about her passions and artistry and why she does what she does. Thank you very much, Rachel Buff, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about this, this podcast of yours. Agreed. Uh, to start, how are you doing today? I am doing all right. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a really strange time. Historically, and uh, I think we're all kind of surfing that personally. You know, we're really close to the election now, which is kind of terrifying and kind of exciting. It's been a wild time. It's been a wild ride. I was just writing, I'm applying for a fellowship, and so I had to like think about the last year. And it's so weird to think about the time before March when everything was different and we did things differently. Like it feels like another universe. So, yeah, it it is winding down. Like we're less than a month away from the election, and uh, time is just like all kind of the last six, seven months have just been. It's all kind of like blurred and jumbled together um it is a it is a very unprecedented time for sure um but uh yeah how uh so um i know you have class after this how is uh, the virtual learning going so far um you know i mean i think we're all doing the best we can do i think um UWM students are always, and particularly now, kind of precarious because it's so hard to pay for school and be in school and work and take care of families. And so many of my students are also now responsible for the education of their nephews or younger siblings or, so that's just crazy. And for some reason, like, I've never taught, before the summer, I'd never taught fully online before. I've always taught, I've sometimes taught hybrid classes where there's, stuff online but we meet because i'm pretty committed as a as a person and as a, a political person to the classroom as a practice space for democracy mm-hmm. i think it's really important that we meet and we look at each other and we work some stuff out particularly teaching u.s history as i tend to do and comparative ethnic studies which is difficult painful work for a lot of people I think it's really important that we be present with each other. So I've never taught fully online before. Um, You know, and I, it's just different. It's weirdly time consuming. And I'm like, my weeks are like sprints in a way that they haven't been in a long time. And um, yeah, it's okay. I think we're all doing the best we can do. Yeah, 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 most most definitely. Um, But when we talk about Mr. Nice Guy, we talk, Love and fear, passion and creativity. And um, so um, I guess we, so this is our first time really like officially having like a face-to-face conversation, but I've been familiar with your work for a couple years now, um, mainly because I know you are also Jewish. Um, I am as well and um, kind of have had my own sort of journey with like, um, um, like, Jewish social justice and uh, anti-Zionism work, which began with, do you know Ari Blumenkatz? I do. Good friend of mine. Yeah, he, uh, he introduced me to If Not Now, mm-hmm. um, which do great work. 
Um, but we can talk about that in a bit. To start, Rachel, um, where, uh, where are you originally from? I grew up in the suburbs of New York City. Um, both my parents are from small towns. So my dad grew up in West Virginia and my mom was from upstate New York. So they had this real sense of um, uh, outsiderness as Jews, which I think really influenced how I think about everything. They were very attentive both to the, you know, I grew up in Westchester County, so my parents were very attentive to the dominant WASP majority and wanting to be like them and envying them and also really being savagely critical of them and making fun of them, which is an intense thing for a little kid, right? You're like, wait, we're supposed to, no, they're ridiculous. No, we're supposed to do what, you know? Yeah. So um, I think that that sense of insider outsiderness really shaped me in a, in a way. And um, so, yeah, that's where I'm from. Sure. Yeah. Great. Um, so uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about your education. Uh, where did you attend school and what did you study? I went to Brown University undergraduate and I dropped out after a year and a half and went out west to Seattle to live with some friends and um, worked crappy jobs. I was really a romantic in kind of a Jack Kerouac way then and now kind of. Um, I thought that I needed to learn something about the world from like riding buses and working crappy jobs. And I did that for a year and a half. And then I went back and finished my degree, which was in history. And then um, I worked for another couple of years in crappy jobs and came to the Midwest to go to graduate school. I went to graduate school at the University of Minnesota. Um, uh, and that's where I you know, got my PhD, met my life partner, kind of became, I think of that as where like, I don't know if you have this in your life, but like it's where um, kind of the colors got turned up in my life, like where I figured out who I wanted to be and started being started practicing being it. I think I'm still sure. practicing. I think a lot of people, this was true for me, like I had an idea of what I wanted, but I didn't know where it was. I had an intuitive idea of what I wanted my life to be like, you know, probably based a lot on reading Grace Paley and thinking like you can be a writer and an activist and, um, but I didn't have actual role models that I knew. Um, I just had this weird idea that this was possible. And then, um, you know, in Minnesota, I, I met like-minded folks in and outside the university. Minneapolis, the Twin Cities are, is an amazing place to be sentient in many ways, you know, politically, artistically, historically. Um, so I feel like it's just where, it's like my life till then had been like, you know, kind of cool, but it went into Technicolor in Minnesota. Certainly, so, oh, that's awesome, great. And then uh, how'd you land in Milwaukee? You know, if you join, if you're an academic, you go where the jobs are. So I got a job in Western Massachusetts right out of grad school. I was there for a year and then I got a job at um, Bowling Green State University in Ohio. And, you know, that was really hard for me. Um, I really hated that part of the Midwest. I was used to, I'd sort of fallen in love with this Midwest, the upper Midwest, the urban Midwest how funky and diverse and complicated it is. And um, Toledo, that Rust Belt was, it's a hard place to live. And uh, Bowling Green is in, you know, it's 30 miles south of Toledo. It's in the sort of flatlands. Um, so I, didn't, I did not like living in Ohio, but um, some of my, some friends, some really important friends I met there were doing um, 
the Farm Labor Organizing Committee, which is kind of the Midwest version of um, United Farm Workers, is in is located in Toledo. So some of my friends were doing work around that, and so that's a little bit how I came into the immigrant rights work that I do. Sure. Is that um, I started working with, I met some folks who were doing. Um, there were there were two lawyers. They were called Equal Justice, and they were basically suing farmers um, with flock for better working conditions. And um, I just started. I had the impression, and it's sort of funny now, like, you know, you, you, academics don't work in the same time way that high school teachers work. So you have two or three classes and you have a lot of apparently free time in the week. And so as a junior professor, I was like, well, I have lots of time. So I, I volunteered to drive around Ohio taking pictures of farm labor camps for them. Um, so that taught me all kinds of things about immigration, also about visually the Midwest, like, I'm not a rural person, uh, you know, from the suburbs, of, I prefer to live in cities, I always have, and uh, I didn't get that, like, a outbuilding can be a storage shed, or it can be a place where your workers are living in crappy third world conditions behind your very nice farmhouse, or, so it helped me, like, re-see the Midwest in this way, like, as this, like, you know, you can have this, like, whatever, oh, lovely farmland, and then you realize, like, wow, those farms are, like, really impacted sites of struggle. Yeah. And so it taught me a lot about the Midwest. So that was, you know, and I made really dear friends through that work. So that, and then um, after eight years there, I applied for a job here at UWM and came here. And UWM is the kind of place I always wanted to teach. I always wanted to be at a community ca commuter campus in a city with the kind of students, you know, I love UWM students. I think they're really hardworking and they have complicated lives and they get the value of they're struggling to be in school and they get why it's valuable, which is not always the case in higher ed. I think a lot of people who are, whose parents tell them to go to school when they're 18 and pay for it, like some of those are great students, but a lot of them would rather be somewhere else and they haven't, and they're just pissed and you're like their mom, not fun. You know, I, I am a mom, I love being a mom to my kids, but I don't wanna be somebody's mom, like you have to hand in your paper, like don't hand in your freaking paper. Like if this isn't valuable to you, that's fine, I don't care. Right. But I, I want to work with students who get it, who are like, yeah, this is a privilege. Yeah, certainly. Right. Where they don't treat it as merely just for a grade. Like they want it because it's an en enriching experience to like research and learn and conduct research about a topic, certainly. Or they get it that it's like, you know, they have to get this degree because they, you know, there's lots of students at UWM that are like, you know, I have to take history class because I want to be a pharmacist and it's, you know, they're still like checking boxes. That's a lot of what American higher education is now. But, you know, they've, they've worked really hard to get to school and they're appreciative of what it means to be there, even if they're like, you know, not a fan of history or, you know, they're just doing it because they have to. Their advisor told them they have to take this class. Or Yeah, I went through that myself. <laughs> did you go to UWM, Ben? I did. Um, I was a journalism major. I, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. So similar to you, I always kind of saw myself as a um, more city and urban oriented person. Um, and uh, yeah, and I came to UWM six years ago. I've been in Milwaukee for six years, um, but yeah. Um, interestingly enough, like because you're talking about like higher education and how modernized academia can like, you know, it kind of prepares you for that typical, like, you know, nine to five uh, sort of format of 
like a career and me being a journalist, like you and you kind of what you were saying earlier, you apply to where the jobs are and that takes you wherever it takes you. And, uh, you know, you have to uh, um, devote yourself and subscribe to um, the mainstream media. But my lat my senior seminar was on Marxist theory. <laughs> so on my way out, I'm like, well, that doesn't sound so appealing now if I'm <laughs> going to be serving a numbers game of, uh, you know, because that was my first exposure to like how capitalism controls and, and uh, basically writes the media and uh, the media conglomerates are all, you know, monopolizing the media and everything we consume. And so I, I do music journalism now. <laughs> I don't do any, uh, I, I wouldn't write for a major news station for that reason. Um, but I'm, I mean, I was very fortunate to have those lessons and when I did, because I very, I very likely could have, you know, been, uh, you know, sucked into a job that didn't really uh, serve my own purposes and values, you know? Yeah, I think that there's like a real tension probably in any life between climbing ladders and, you know, pushing out away from the ladders and forging your own path. I, I think that that, and I think that that's like a, a struggle. And then the other piece of what you're saying, I think that is really important. And we we're just talking to my 16 year old last night. She was asking us about the difference between Marxism and anarchism. And we were like, well, you know, the anarchist thing is if you like school, you'll love work. You know, like if you like checking boxes and doing what the teacher says, you'll really like work, but maybe you really won't. And, you know, it's not that, there isn't room for that person in Marxist thinking. It's just the tradition, the tension, but she was asking about the tension between them, which, you know, God, she has two professors for parents. So we were like, well, where, where can we even start to talk about this? Like, yeah, no, I, think I, I think I kind of got into academia. I know I kind of got into academia because I really, I worked some like, you know, office temp jobs where you like went to work when it was just getting light and came out when it was dark in the winter. And I was like, I can't, I need to have some control of my time. Yeah. And it's not that academics don't work hard. We just have a fair amount of control of our time, which I think is part of why, like, you know, what happened in Wisconsin with Scott Walker and, you know, which is happening nationally, the pushback against teachers and particularly professors is because we have a fair amount of freedom. And I think that that's sort of anathema. Like, you know, the whole notion of lazy professors, we work really hard. We just have a fair amount of control of when we work. Yeah. You know, so you can, like, be doing your course prep at 4 a.m. Like I am often up at 4 a.m. just because I'm an insomniac and I do some work then, you know, like I don't yeah. free to do that, but I don't, I don't have to punch a clock at nine. Like I chose that life. So I wake up at four, like, oh shit, I have to do all this, sh this stuff. Um, that's, that's okay with me. I signed up for that because like the punching a clock at eight and coming out of dark made me so sad. I just couldn't, I couldn't, yeah. I didn't want that life. I, I'm glad you say that because yeah, like, 4 a.m. could be your most productive hour of the day, depending on your needs and your circadian rhythms. Like, yeah, I we're so conditioned to have like that dawn to dusk work day. Um, it's just so normative. But yeah, I mean, we're finding more and more ways to challenge that and to listen to our own um, productive rhythms and whatnot. So, um. Yeah, so uh, tell me about uh, the classes you teach at UWM. So right now I'm teaching um, 
Ethnic 101, which is called The Making of American Cultures, Indian Nations, Africans, and Europeans. Um, so it's one of two introductions to ethnic studies. And I kind of struggled with it when I came here, like why have those groups in 101 and Asians, Latinx, and um, Arab and Muslim Americans in 102. But I learned that students off, students like that, like a lot of Arab and Muslim students take 102. And um, But I'm teaching Ethnic 101 as I have for the past couple of years for a program called the Milwaukee Scholars Program, which brings kids from Milwaukee high schools, Milwaukee and Madison high schools and after school programs into UWM as a cohort and they do um, the Cultures and Communities Program, which I run um, together. And then they major in whatever, you know, different stuff that they want to major in. But it, it gives them a sense of support as a cohort. They're 99, 100% kids of color, really high proportion of um, recent refugees and immigrants from all over the world, which is pretty interesting. So that's like, it's such a blessing. I've been teaching ethnic studies or American history and race issues my whole career. And as a white lady, I, I figure like, you know, it's part of my job to deal with white resistance, right? So, you know, the student who's like, tell me again how it is that black people can't be racist and the whole class has to go down that rabbit hole again. And it's really boring. And it's really just about that person's resistance to that, that concept of racism and white supremacy. And, you know, that work is the work I elected to do. You know, like that's part of, I don't know, my particular wage of whiteness, like, but not having to do it in the classroom, like having a classroom full of students who get certain things without your, like, they're like, yeah, we get why racism is important and central in shaping everyday life. Like, that's usually an argument in my classes. And there's, you know, even at a place like UWM, in this, you know, whatever, progressive city in this red state, you know, you have a lot of students from suburban and color counties who are afraid of Milwaukee, afraid of classes like mine. Literally, I taught a first year seminar last year on, it was called, really radical title, Don't Freak Out, Immigration Policy. And um, my students, you know, there were like 10 of them and we got pretty close and they all told me after Thanksgiving that when they went home, their families were like, how's it going? Have they, what have they done to you? Yeah. <laughs> like, wow, and because yeah. we were talking about like, well, we don't have any anti-immigrant students in this class, there were, few recent immigrants and then a bunch of fairly progressive white kids and they were like those people wouldn't even take this class yeah right so it's, yeah it's, immediate, it's the immediate challenge of like you know everything they've constructed as their reality totally and you know they did such cool things in that class we my friend um kai mishlove gardner who's an amazing local refugee advocate. Um, she's the person who organizes Tables Across Borders, which is, you know, refugee chefs cooking and my students went up volunteering and meeting the refugee chefs and hanging out with them. And, you know, it was so, they had such a good time, but like they, their families were like, are you okay? <laughs> what are they doing to you? Yeah. Like, I don't know, they're feeding you a lot of spicy food that's just terrible. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, like, that's such a threat to your values, right? Um, yeah, um, it's I mean, funny you say what's that? Apparently it is a threat to some people's values, you know, which is wild. Right, right. Um, it's interesting because, like, when I first moved to Milwaukee, as you mentioned, like, yeah, a lot of folks come from small town, rural Wisconsin. I was the first Jew that a lot of uh, my friends met. Um, like, when I'm, like, I had good friends from, like, you know, Wausau 
and they had never met a Jew before. Um, or they might have gone to school with like one or two uh, uh, black folks at, at like they grew up with like, you know, there were only a couple one or you could count on one hand the amount of black families or Arab families or Latinx families that and they don't get that, um, you know, they don't they don't get that like cultural exposure to like understand like an urban melting pot that is Milwaukee, like understanding how, you know, social and cultural uh, discrepancies that affect different groups of people outside of where your, your reality was shaped, you know, like in a small town, like across the state. And uh, that's why like I tried my best to have patience with folks that are still, you know, challenge like kind of what you're saying just challenging everything they've grown to understand and taking a class like that like the one you teach is of utmost importance to that to that odyssey um certainly yeah i mean i think that that also is part of the assault on universities like we have at uwm and this is very common one cultural diversity requirement so the classes the ethnic studies classes i teach are fulfill that but if you think about the one class, you know, because like as somebody who studies, you know, immigration and the history of white supremacy, like it's, it's like a career and I still don't get it, you know, and like one class, really? <laughs> yeah, honestly, yeah. I remember I satisfied that credit, like my first semester and it was uh, a film class on multicultural America, yep. which was a great class. But yeah, that should definitely be expanded upon most yeah. definitely. Yeah. So I'd love to hear about, uh, did you, um, do you teach anything else or uh, right now? Uh, this semester I'm also teaching um, the first half of the US survey, which I love to teach even though my period is later, but I love the teaching the 17th and 18th centuries because they're so, they're so strange and formative of the time we have now. Like I am that thinker in graduate school, my advisor who was a really wonderful role model in many ways, but I remember he said like, well, it's really good that you like to think about continuity because everyone else is thinking about rupture, but I really do like to think about continuity. Like how is it that, you know, settler colonialism in the 17th century shapes Milwaukee today? You know, I can see a through line, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I'm teaching the first half of the survey also for the first time fully online, you know, which is a good thing and a bad thing. I thought a lot about this and I had my daughter goes, is a student at U of Minnesota and she was home during the first few months of the pandemic. And she was like, mom, like, don't do the hour lecture online. Don't. She had like a lot of don'ts because she's doing stuff online. And so I have like sort of a minimal synchronous presence, which I feel really mixed about like I, I'm trying to make things easy for my students who often don't have internet access slash are sleeping in their cars slash you know whatever they they have their lives are really complicated at the same time I really miss the contact but that's just where we're at yeah for sure um I'd love to hear about uh, your your latest book a <laughs> is for asylum seeker um um if you would uh, love to share sort of like the idea, the concept, like what went into this piece of work? So I'm an immigration historian and I'm also a creative writer and an activist. And I guess for a long time, I thought that I would just be closeted about the creative work and the activist work and just be in the academy and 
be a professor and pretend to be a professor. And so I, I had kind of like this secret life. And then, you know, one really wonderful thing about particularly my department, but UWM in general, is there's a lot of people who are really community engaged. So I stopped being so secretive about that part of my life. And um, I saw, you know, cultures and communities is one of many places where, you know, the university really, the culture of the university encourages um, people who are engaged and there's a really good community of us who do social activism and justice work. So I stopped being quite so closeted about that. Um, you know, I, and I guess like at the same time, I started writing more um, public facing stuff. Uh, I write for Jewish Currents. I write for a lot of different zines. And sometimes I get published in places like The Nation or The Washington Post. And I start taking that writing more and more seriously. Because one thing about academic writing, like the book I wrote before this, which is called um, Against the Deportation Terror, is the story of a bunch of mid-century radical leftist immigrant rights organizers. And I love these people, you know, some of them were Jewish, some of them were Latinx, there were, they, they were, they were, there were different um, groups all over the country that were part of this network. They were in operation from the 1930s to the 1980s. And I, I just fell in love with them. Like that, that hasn't happened to me a lot. I think it happens to historians a lot that they have these historical crushes, but I was like, oh my God, these are my people. They just all happen to be dead, but I still really love them. <laughs> and so that work was really an act of love about, you know, they were red baited and not only red baited at the time, like their leader went to jail for a while, they were listed on the, the list of subversive organizations and they couldn't lobby and all this stuff for years during the 50s. Not only were they red baited in time, but they were red baited in that they just had, weren't written about by historians, they were forgotten, which is like, I think the ultimate um, capitalist conspiracy is to forget the left, like we, you know, we never existed. So it was a love letter to them and a resurrection of them, but it was also a love letter to Vosses de la Frontera saying, hey, we have a history, like this work has been going on, like it didn't emerge from nowhere, like this, this is a deep history. And like, I wrote an academic book about it and like, none of the people, none of the people who I was writing the love letter to read it, right? Like they were like, that's nice. And like the dead people, of course, didn't read it because they're dead. But the living people who I was like, hey, yo, you know, when we're marching on May 1st, like people have been doing this. You write academic stuff like even my mom, like I'd go home and the page would be dog-eared on page five. Like, oh, this is your book here. <laughs> like it's nicely put it. I wanted to write a book that people would read that would be useful to people. And um I went to the border a couple of times in 2019 and did work with Alotrolaro and some other organizations there. And what I saw is, you know, the crisis of people coming to the border seeking asylum, seeking refuge, and being refused, you know, under the zero tolerance policy of the Trump administration. But really, it goes back way before that. But, you know, that's, you know, that's a crisis that's been going on since 2018. And what I saw was that one thing that they were doing to facilitate this brutality was corrupting language. You know, they were calling refugees, you know, criminals. And like, as you know, as a journalist, that's really important. So aliens, aliens, aliens bad hombres. Like, and so I wanted to write a book that would be like, let's really think clearly and historically about language and what is an asylum seeker and what is a refugee and why are these people calling themselves, why are they talking about their human rights when they're not in their home country? So A is for asylum seeker is a bilingual, it's an English and Spanish kind of historical glossary of words 
for people who are on the move. So asylum seeker, fugitive, which goes back to um, the fugitive slave laws and um, uh, that black freedom struggle, um, itinerant, which, you know, that entry goes back to um, the dispossession of indigenous people in the 17th and 16th century who, like if you steal somebody's land and they're still around, then you're like, oh, well, they're itinerants. They have nowhere to be. <laughs> But like that, there's a reason for that, right? They're not just like, they haven't always been like ghosting around, right? right. They, they yeah. used to have a place to be, but you stole it. Right. Then you make itinerancy a crime. Like the formative, we start to fill jails in the 18th century with the crime of vagrancy. So the, the prison industrial complex happens on the backs of dispossession and disenfranchisement of indigenous people, of Africans and African-Americans, of poor whites, of women, unruly women, like anyone who, who was like, you have to get out of here, like back in the colonial days, they would call it warning out, like you have to go. Then you're like, you're gonna get busted for being a vagrant. Yeah. Right, so I got really interested in that historically and then also in the current time, like what are, what are these languages? Um, what are these words that we use? Like illegal alien is one, alien is definitely one, um, detainee, you know, like um, you were talking about Ari, and I know Ari mostly through Never Again work. Yeah. But at the moment at which, you know, it's AOC who calls the, the detention camps concentration camps, and then there's this furor, right? Like, are you allowed to use that word? That's just for Jews. You know, and then Never Again comes around saying like, no, we're Jews and we think you should use that word. And in fact, our job is to say it happened to us, it shouldn't happen to other people. Like, that's a language. That's a fight over language. Like, who, who gets concentration camps? Like, I can't believe it comes down to that, but it does. Right, exactly. Like we, you know, as profoundly horrible and visceral, you know, the Holocaust was like, you know, we are not the only people that have experienced ongoing perpetual genocide and ethnic cleansing. And yeah, like you said, like, displacement, disenfranchisement, like it's been going on it was going on before the Holocaust and it's going on well after it as well. Um, and that's like, yeah, I mean, were you at the, uh, the uh, never again action uh, last, su what, not this past summer, but two summers ago. Outside August of 1st. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Were you there? Yes, I was. Yeah. That was my first ever protest. Really? It was. It was a good uh, one. That was a good first protest. Yeah. It was. Um, I didn't get to stay beyond the morning, but I know Ari and a couple other folks were there all day. Yep. Yeah, I helped Ari organize that. Um, yeah, and that's a really, I mean, I know you wanted to talk some about the whole Zionism piece, like, you know, that never again piece, you know, that's a really interesting moment because never again action, the organization, you know, says like, no, actually it's our job as Jews to be worried about displaced persons, period. Right. Because really at the moment when the UN creates, not creates, but you know, really gives juridical meaning to the term refugee in 1951, we're two years out from the Nakba, the displacement of Palestinians by the creation right. of the State of Israel and the foundation of UNRWA, the UN, it was supposed to be this temporary agency to resettle Palestinians that, that celebrates its like 70th anniversary, right? So, I mean, I think I was talking to my daughter about this the other day um, because it was a big deal in my household um, because we belong to a congregation here, like a liberal Zionist, I would say, congregation. And 
because my older daughter wanted to get bat mitzvahed. And as I got more pulled into JVP and non-Zionist work after um, 2014 and Operation, what was it called? The In 2014, um, you said? Yeah. yeah, it was 2014. Protect Badge, thank you. So, you know, I had to sort of, I was teaching Sunday school in that temple and I had to sort of break up with it. And so my kids are pretty, they've been through it. They were pretty little and they were like, you know, suddenly we're not, we're not going back to that temple and we're sort of not welcome in a lot of Jewish places around town in the same way that we were. And, um, you know, my daughter was telling me that she, she was talking to someone and she was like, well, you know, this person isn't anti-Zionist. And I was like, I'm not sure I'm anti-Zionist. I think Israel should be a place where all refugees should go. Yeah. I think it should be shared by Israelis and Palestinians. But I think like, if we're really talking about specialness and like, that's the whole Jewish thing, like we're the chosen people, whatever. Like, if we really want it to be a special place, let's make it like a place where everyone can go seek refuge. That would be special. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I always think about tikkun olam. You know, that's, that's sort of a principle that I recognize is the most Jewish thing you can do, is to stand up for oppressed and marginalized folks across the world and help prepare the world. Because, you know, the world is on fire. It's been on fire for thousands of years. And, uh, you know, it's, it is our duty and obligation as a people to help liberate others. And that includes Palestine and, uh, and also Jews of color as well. You know, and that's that's a piece that's often overlooked is that, you know, there's there are many there are many Jewish populations across the world that are not white, that are black and brown. Um, and they receive they've experienced so much societal and institutionalized discrimination and racism in Israel that, you know, doesn't get talked about because of all of the, you know, the pink washing, the pink washing and the agriculture washing and the technology washing and the every, you know, all like so much to get into. But that on that note, so would you say that like kind of just your studies in like, you know, communities and cultures and like under ethnic studies influenced your in anti-Zionism kind of like you saw it like it, it became like a piece of a bigger picture so I really knowingly like when I was in graduate school I was involved in a group we called um, Jewish activist minion there was a bunch of Jewish women and we were radicals and um, we did protests of we went to the then department uh, it was before ICE um, the Immigration Naturalization Service and protested deportations on Yom Kippur and we were, you know, there were like 12 of us and we were young and creative and we got in trouble right away because we protested the um, visit of the Israeli ambassador to Minneapolis. And it was really clear to me because there were a few people in our group that were from Minneapolis and they were like, These, this, is, this is your one shot. We had pissed off the American Jewish community and you didn't get a second chance at that. So it's like the third rail, right? If you're, and like, I think American Judaism is progressive, you know, it's progressive except for Palestine. You can talk about anything, yeah. but that's not really true. And I think that that's really, we can really feel that in our current era. Like, you know, the, 
Black Lives Matter movement, their official statement in 2017, you know, talks about the Palestine to Ferguson connection. And so mm. Jewish liberal communities have had to be like, you know, backing up a little and being like, well, maybe all lives matter. You know, like there's just, there's this way that like, for a long time in my life, I thought of it as the third rail. Like I'm gonna do, I'm gonna be progressive in every way. I'm not gonna deal with Israel because it's too hard. It's gonna get me in trouble. I don't know what I was afraid of then, but I, you know, once you've been in the same boat too, I've been in the same boat for sure, especially as a former Zionist. Like, were you actually actively a Zionist? I was in college. Um, you know, I was involved in Hillel at UWM. Yeah, it was just so it, it intersected so much. Was the Israel advocacy intersected with the mainstream Jewish yeah life? And uh, I didn't know how to separate the two for the longest time. You're kind of not allowed to in organized Judaism. Like, yeah. It was really clear to me because what happened to me at the temple we were at, you know, I was teaching fourth grade and as I got more interested in JVP, I started teaching more about Palestine and like, it was, I, I had fired, you know, it was like, and I just did some like little, like, let's think about, you know, some of the land that Israel is on, you know, there are fourth graders, let's think, you know, it used to be Palestine and what does that mean kids and what does this map look like? Like, no, you can't talk about that. And what I think now is like, if you can't talk about that, there's a whole bunch of other stuff you can't talk about, right? It's not just Israel, but like, you gotta be really careful of Black Lives Matter. You gotta be really careful. Like I grew up in a community, you know, Reformed Judaism, we weren't Orthodox, but for a really, really long time, I was like a little afraid of the issue of Palestine because the perception was those people don't like us. Yeah. You know, and like, I didn't wear a keffiyeh until I was, here like I, I got my first kafia you know i think i was like 55 or something because i was like well I, I can't do that because they don't like us and that stuff goes really deep and it's like well what else did i miss about the left because i had some like weird idea that as a jew i had to be careful because israel because like i think that all of american judaism most of it tends to be configured that way yeah i yeah i absolutely agree i felt like i left a cult to be quite honest like i felt like i was slowly trying to like it's kind of like um you feel like you're in like a bunch of spider webs and you're just trying to pull away from all of them and like you're when you finally break free you have detached yourself from that indoctrination and uh, i owe that a lot to um a couple things um for one having conversations with palestinians is the utmost most important thing definitely mm -hmm. two um, so I'm actually, I'm a comrade in PSL, um, and, uh, just learning Marxist theory and imperialism and, um, socialist revolutions, that kind of makes you put it all into perspective of, like, dialectical materialism and all that stuff, like, and that's like, oh, like, the settler colonials project of modern day Israel and Zionism, it makes sense, you know, it's a power grab in the Middle East to influence Western and Western imperialism, like you kind of just piece it all together and you're like, oh, that now it, 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 it's only right to be anti-Zionist. Um, it just makes the most sense um, just based on the ideology. That idea of the cult thing, I think is really true. And like, I think there's a way that ex-cult people, like I, I now belong to a congregation, a non-Zionist congregation in Chicago, uh, SEDEC. And I feel like there's a way in which, um, I definitely feel like 
this with the rabbi Brant Rosen and other folks like those of us who've like left the cult like we recognize each other and there's like a way that we're like really fucked up that's really yeah. recognizable like because you know I'm like I'm, to be, yeah I'm afraid to be Jewish in certain spaces yeah. like that are still like kind of what you said I feel almost unwelcome because JVP is designated as a hate group by Zionist uh, re- Zionist related communities or organizations, you know? Oh, totally. Like we can't, for a long time, we had trouble with JPP about space. Like where were we going to meet? We wanted meeting in people's books, which no longer exists, but um, we went to the JCC, which I was a dues paying member of at the time. And uh, could, we were like, could we use one of your rooms when they're empty? And they were like, no. And it's like, no. It's an empty yeah. room. We're Jews. Like I pay dues here. Like I, I want to find it. Like that is the nicest pool. I'm a swimmer. That's the nicest pool in town. And I can't go there anymore because I started just feeling really creeped out. And also I felt like my dues were probably going to like, whatever, the IDF eventually. And it just, I would be swimming thinking like, this is not de-stressing. This is making me feel crappy about who's giving me dirty looks. And my money is going to like kill Palestinians. Forget it. Like I'll swim at Kachi. Fine. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. Like your money is going towards you know, funding birthright initiatives that continues the normalization of the occupation and whatnot. The that being said, yeah, you know, exactly. just like, you know, and, and honestly, the, yeah, yeah, no, but it is like, I, I think I'm, it, it's an intense thing to have brought my kids through that because I think they have this strong sense of Jewish identity, anti-Zionist Jewish identity in a lot of ways, but um, also a, like a kind of, particularly my younger daughter who like, it's like, wait, where, where am I going to get bat mitzvah if we're fleeing this whole community? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure there could be some fun, radical ways to do that. Oh, yeah. I wrote her bat mitzvah service, and Brant came up, and it was beautiful and fun, and I think fairly unprecedented. Yeah. So that being said, the last thing uh, we'll really discuss is JVP, Jewish Voice for Peace. Uh, so um, uh, I'd love to hear from you um as i'm a very recently registered member of the organization yes i'd love to if you'd love to share about what the organization is and stands for and fights for yeah i think for a lot of us coming into it you know because jvp has been around since maybe 2006 or seven i mean i guess to back up on 9-11, I was teaching at Bowling Green and, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, Arabs and Muslims in Toledo. It's, you know, the, Detroit is the biggest center and Toledo is very close to Detroit. So a couple days after it, um, I there was a peace march, which was mostly led by Muslims. And I went with my then infant older daughter and I made a sign that said Jews for peace because there was at least me and her. Um, and after the march was over, I went up to the imam and I said, um, have you reached out to the Jewish community? And he said, um, oh, don't worry, Jews for peace is here. Um, and I was like, no, that's really just me and this baby. Like, you can't really count on us for anything. Yeah. So I guess I want to say, like, I think Jewish Voice for Peace has been lacking in Jewish life in this country for a long time. Though my Comrade Benjamin Balthasar is working on Jewish communist anti-Zionism in this country. And he, he argues that there's a longer thread of it that's also been suppressed, which I think is important. 
But I think JVP in the past 10 years has been a home for a lot of us to sort of think around all the weird exclusions you and I are talking about. Like, don't be too radical, don't ally with these people. Like, it's been a space to, and a space to make the connection. Like, well, if you're pro-Palestinian, then, you know, Standing Rock starts to look like something else and Ferguson starts to look like something else and the way that we think about the world. So it's, I think for a lot of us, I mean, I wasn't around when there was a party, but JVP has felt like that, not because we're a bunch of communists, so many of us are, but more like it, it has felt like home. Yeah. It's felt like a place where we, we organize. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was blown away. I went to my first JVP convention in 2015 with my older daughter. And, you know, there was a, a trans woman leading the Shabbat service talking about what the bride of Shabbat means to queer people, to a queer woman. And I, I sat there crying. My daughter was like, Mom, why are you crying? And I was like, I just didn't think this was possible. I didn't think like my life as a leftist and my life as a Jew could be together in the same room. I'm getting teary thinking of it. So, yeah. um, <laughs> yeah, so that was like, it felt like this, this homecoming that I could not have imagined. And you know, the other piece is like, we're not so far on the fringe anymore. Yeah. You know, like- The tide Jimmy, is turning. The tide is turning. Younger Jews don't even have this like, oh yeah, I should worry about Israel thing. They're just Jewish. Like my kids are not gonna have to thread that needle. They're like, yeah, I'm Jewish. And yeah, I'm not a Zionist. What do you, so what? Exactly. I'm, uh, I don't know if you're part of that cool Jews group on Facebook. Yeah, yeah I'm in that too. And like, uh, it's cool that there's a lot of discourse about that. It's like, oh, yeah, like, myself or my kids or my family, like, we were never Zionist, or it was just never something we actively like subscribed to. Like, we were all we all just were Jewish, you know, we had our Seder dinners, we had our Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, like, and it, if you take away that sort of like that um, politically parasitic piece of, of it that is like Zionism, where which basically hijacks our Jewish identities. Exactly. You feel, I actually feel more Jewish than ever now. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, and I appreciate that, um, you know, you have, that you share those sentiments and, uh, I would love to work with you on expanding JVP in Milwaukee. So we should talk about that. I will get with um, the, the other core members and um, maybe we can have like a little Zoom call. Really quick two questions that I ask everyone at the end. So one, what keeps you up at night? Uh, I'm up a lot at night. Uh, that's a complicated question. Can we go to two? I'll see if I can come back to one. What puts you to sleep? Uh, usually I'm narrating to myself the next things that happen to my characters in the novel I'm writing. Oh, that's awesome. Um, what keeps me up? I don't know. I get it. I, like all the shit about the horrors of Trump and like, that's not what wakes me up as much as like, um, I think it's like a life question of figuring out what, you know, Philip Levine has this great poem, what work is. Yeah. Um, I think I wake up a lot worried about what my work is. Like what, what should I be doing? yeah well thank you so much rachel buff for joining me today um for everyone watching uh i'll be posting a link to uh, rachel's latest book um and her uh studies and uh yeah uh check get to know jvp jewish voice for peace you know support the bds 
and uh, our work is only starting here. Thank you it's for watching. Great talking to you, Ben. Thank you for having me on. Great Bye. to talk to you, Rachel.